Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 28 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today I'm joined by Dr. Adam Sanford, who is a naturopathic medical doctor in Los Angeles, America, and he focuses on blending the best of conventional and alternative medicines to create personalized health protocols that meet each patient's goals, ethics, and physiology. While a primary care provider covering the full gambit of concerns, he has a special focus on gut and hormone disorders. And I had the absolute pleasure of being face-to-face with Dr. Sanford when I was in the States recently. And today we cover a whole bunch of questions and topics that people have been asking me to cover regarding SIBO. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Adam Sanford. Welcome to the show, Dr. Adam Sanford. It is so great to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. It's lovely to see you again. Thanks for for having me. My pleasure. And uh, I have the great pleasure of actually sitting face-to-face with you in your clinic here in Los Angeles as I'm out uh, stateside having been to the Integrative SIBO Conference. So it's really, really pleasurable being able to sit face-to-face and have a chat. Yeah, definitely different than the internet. Yeah. (laughs) Very different. So we last saw each other about uh, nearly a year, a year ago, ago, actually, yeah, yeah. when I came in and met you for the first time, and we did a we did a fun um, video that I shared with my community. Yeah, people love it. Yeah, we've had a lot of views on that video, and so it was only natural that I'd want to come and sit down with you and actually f- um, record a podcast interview with you. Indeed. So. Let's start off with just um, talking a little bit about how you came to be a naturopathic doctor and um, and also with an interest in SIBO. Mm. That's a, a good question. I came to be a naturopathic doctor after 10 years of working in high tech. Uh, loved it, had a good time, but it wasn't really feeding me anymore. Uh, looking for ways to use those same skills. Medicine called and naturopathic medicine screamed. Uh, and so I went from technology, took seven years, went off into that land, and I've been running ever since. Uh, Naturopathic medicine is just a delight to do. You have all the same tools as a conventional doctor, uh, plus oodles more, where we just really get to pick and choose and base it off of what's right for the patient, what the patient's philosophy is. As for how did I get interested in uh, SIBO, I think that SIBO got interested in me about... um, Two or three years ago, we really started seeing more and more um, of these chronic gut conditions coming in. That's also when the tools and the trainings really started kicking up in terms of diagnosing it. So it's 
picked up and somehow I think I've picked up a reputation for being like one of the SIBO doctors for Southern LA. Uh, and so we just see a ton of it with Dr. Abercrombie and Lavoie and myself. You definitely have uh, picked up that uh, reputation as a SIBO doc, which is in fact how I came across you when I was uh, searching for docs and your name kept appearing. So uh, yeah, that reputation is there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing what you can find out on the internet. um, Someone said to me that you are are only who you are um, based on what Google says you are. And so Google was telling me you were a SIBO doc. Oh, goodness. Well, that's great. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So you have all sorts of people coming into your practice. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about generally, you know, who's walking through the door and what they're they're looking for help with? Yeah, it's a a pretty broad array because we run a, a primary care facility. It's anybody that has anything where they want something different than the norm that can be coming in. Here in California, uh, Indies have a very broad ability from some prescriptive rights uh, to ordering labs to everything else. So it, you have people that find out about us and they think that we really are the next step for what they're looking for. Uh, either you have people coming in that are super healthy, that just want to expand their lives, or folks that have been to tons of different specialists, not getting what they're looking for, and are looking for you know that next step. And the thing that I hear the most is they're looking for a plan. They're looking for an idea of what is actually wrong with them and for how all of their myriad things can tie together. Definitely. And I I myself had that experience of going to conventional docs for years and uh, and then looking for um, solutions and alternatives to how I could get well because I just wasn't getting those answers with my conventional medical practitioners um, back in Australia. Uh, and I think naturopaths and naturopathic doctors can often be a, a first place that people go when they start looking outside of the norm. Uh, in Australia, we don't have naturopathic doctors. Um, that qualification isn't available. They can um, obviously study over here in the States, but they don't have prescription rights like you guys do. So um, a naturopathic doctor who's qualified in America will have to treat um, or practice as a naturopath in Australia. And something that Dr. Narala Jacobi says, who is an ND, um, studied with mm-hmm. Bastia University, um, when she moved to Australia, her prescription rights um, were no longer, longer um, present. So she claims that she has become a better physician because she has to think outside the square. She can't just go straight to um, pharmaceutical medications for her patients. I absolutely agree with that. I uh, find myself sometimes using the drugs as a crutch, which really isn't what the patients need. And so I don't do it that often. But uh, she's, she's very much correct. When you are have to limit down the tools that you have to use. You have to get very creative. And when you get creative, you're able to address the conditions for more than just the, the single point of focus. For example, with SIBO, um, we, so many uh, folks think that it's really just a bacterial overgrowth condition, hence the name. Um, and so thus you must carpet vomit with antibiotics. Well, it has so many more components to it from motility to overall immune system function uh, to thyroid impact, everything like that, where if you're just targeting the bacterial approach, just hitting it with pharmaceutical or antimicrobial uh, herbs, you're very narrow only on one tiny slice of a very broad condition like we were talking about earlier. 
doesn't even touch on the psychosocial aspects you're mentioning. Yes, and so before our interview started, we were talking about uh, the other aspects that I'm very passionate about myself, uh, which I don't believe gets enough attention, and it's one of the things why I'm so passionate about what I do as a patient advocate uh, is that we need to think about psychology, we need to think about lifestyle, we need to think about movement, we need to think about all these other aspects that are non-medical as such, but all impact the health of our body. Um, I really like what you say that SIBO really is um, looking at the bacterial overgrowth itself is just one slice of the condition. Do you see that SIBO is a disease or do you see that it's symptomatic of something else that's or other things that are going wrong in the body? That's definitely something I've been putting a lot of thought into. When I started working with SIBO, it's very much just like how most of us are treating. It's go after the bacteria, go after the bacteria. But it's looking more and more like it's more of a motility issue, how quickly your body is clearing things out from your stomach to the large intestine and from the large intestine out. You can kill all the bacteria that you want, but if that's not addressed, you're still going to have a lot more time and opportunity for the bacteria to come back in uh, and hit that area. And so then you have to sort of do what I, we naturopaths uh, call think upstream. What, what's causing that slow motility? Is it thyroid? Is it nervous system damage? Is it that the leaky gut has just kicked up inflammation, which has just ticked off the nerves in the area, which is slowing it down? There's, and if it's hypothyroid, what's causing the hypothyroidism? You can keep following that chain all the way up. And that's where I think that SIBO is more than just a kill a bacteria kind of condition. It's you have to look at what's going on with the individual person and try to nail that root cause while at the same time killing the bacteria so that they stop being in such discomfort. And is there an approach that you take to um, start somewhere? Do you do you go, okay, let's look at thyroid first or let's look at a nervous system damage perhaps because there's been um, cases of food poisoning that may have damaged the nervous system in the mm-hmm. gut, which has therefore affected motility. How do you know where to start or, or do you just pick one place and, and then and move from there? Usually it's based off of what the person's saying, based off of their history. If they have a bunch of tiredness or scalloped tongues, bumps on the back of their arms, uh, constipation aspect, hair falling out, you think, oh, okay, maybe there's a thyroid thing going on in there. Uh, If they have nervous system symptoms, maybe you start thinking down that. For the autoimmune, the the post-infectious autoimmune thing with anti-vaniculin tests, I'm not really sold on them quite yet that's but that's just a doctor's opinion out there i don't have any science i just haven't seen it playing out uh, clinically yet uh, but you just start at the place that's resonating the most while still trying to cast the net wide enough in case you accidentally missed uh the potential root cause and there can be more than one as well can't there oh yeah yeah it's a it's a series of dominoes uh that have many different paths that they're falling down in it's one thing cascades into another, and i that's one of the beauties about this type of medicine is you are constantly playing and engaging with the patient to try to track things down to the roots. Mm. And my own journey, uh, it was premature birth, not breastfed. I was born vaginally, but uh, 
pumped full of antibiotics, um, multiple rounds of food poisoning over my lifetime. I've had parasite infections. I've had several abdominal surgeries. I've had abdominal injuries. Uh, literally, you know, everything that could have happened has happened. And I look at the all of the pathways for bacterial overgrowth to occur, and I feel like I tick most of those. <laughs> and uh, and so, like you say, it's a bit of a you know, sometimes you start somewhere and it's a it's a domino effect. And, and what I find interesting, whilst currently my I don't have a bacterial overgrowth in my small intestine, um, I am now working on these other areas in within my own body to help support it continue moving back towards optimal health. So looking at adhesions currently mm-hmm. and looking at methylation, which we're going to talk about, um, and looking at other aspects, thyroid and hormones as well, which I can see are playing a big part in my uh, in my system at the moment. Um, so I'm not addressing the small intestinal um, bacterial overgrowth anymore because that isn't really playing a part. But I'm sure that if I don't address these other areas, it will return. Yeah, very likely. And do you see that with your um, patients that if they're only addressing it through reduction of bacteria numbers that it does it's more likely to return? Yes, absolutely. That uh, one of the things that I counsel patients on these days is I'm looking at SIBO more and more as a chronic condition, uh, just to set expectations for both them and myself, because you can go through those cycles. You treat it with antibacterials, it goes away, you feel great for a few months, and it's back six or eight months later. Or they do that and they do the super restrictive diet for a year, and it comes back. Um, so we get into place the treatment, get people feeling better, start doing all of the repair components, but also I'll frequently have them doing, you know, a week per month of herbs or something to maintain it. Um, if a person's thinking of it as just something obnoxious that they occasionally have to swat down rather than deal with the, the huge amount of symptoms, uh, it helps their long-term engagement and they're focusing on other uh, the other health uh, conditions that they might have going on. Mm, yep. Let's talk about methylation because before we started recording this podcast, you gave me such a great, um, very simplistic explanation of it. And it's something that I had never heard of until more recent times. Even when I first got diagnosed with SIBO, I had never heard of methylation pathways or or the genetic mutation MTHFR. Um, and I've asked many people what it is and I've never I've still never fully understood it but you gave me such a simple um, and easy to understand explanation so would you be able to share with the listeners what methylation actually is Well if I don't say it exactly remind me what I said um, methylation is a core component in every cell in your body for how the cell creates these tiny little groups called methyl groups and their main job, and this is pretty simplified, but it's how my brain works, is uh, they turn things on and off in the body from DNA to enzymes to things like that. So pretty important. The little methyl groups in the methylation process is also involved in detoxification, so getting things out of your body, helping your liver, things like that. In another channel, it helps create a thing called glutathione, which is your body's one of your body's main antioxidants. So without that, you have much more oxidative damage and things like that that can happen. The whole cycle 
Also helps with red blood cells and making and replication of cells and things like that. So if you have methylation, maybe you have dry skin or you know, poor gut healing, things like that. And then there's a whole slew of things that happens with regards to the production of your neurotransmitters. But the long story short is it makes stuff that helps things turn on and off in the body. And you said something to me which was around turning lights on and off. And I quite liked uh, that analogy that I could I could almost visualize a house mm-hmm. where lights in rooms were being switched on or off depending on the methylation. Is that, is that yeah. fair to say? It's Yeah, it's it's a way to, to help fit it into a matrix for how you're thinking about it. Yeah. Absolutely. And if our methylation isn't working properly, what can happen? Given that it's in every cell in your body – it can manifest all over the place. Um, nervous system and mood conditions really are huge. So a lot of depression, ADHD, focus, irritability, uh, huge things in there. Anxiety is, is dramatically impacted uh, by that. Uh, fatigue can impact, immune system uh, can impact. And something you and I were just talking about, which Absolutely no studies on this yet, but could be very interesting for the correlation that we see between methylation and SIBO is if methylation is compromising glutathione production and glutathione is protecting the thyroid, and if your thyroid slows down, you have slow motility, and with slow motility, you have SIBO, that's a very interesting domino cascade. I haven't seen any studies on this and haven't really talked to any other docs on it, but just as we were talking that makes really perfect sense for why that correlation is there. And I see anecdotally in the um, SIBO uh, forums on uh, Facebook and the like and also with my own clients that there is a lot of correlation between people with SIBO and people with thyroid dysfunction mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. How, how can you find out if you know, there is an issue with thyroid and, and why is the thyroid important? So the thyroid is the main driver of your metabolism in your body. If you feel cold all the time, if you have the scalloped tongue I was talking about, bumps in the back of the urine, constipation, fatigue, hair falling out, all that stuff, uh, but mostly energy, that's your thyroid that's helping to drive that. Your thyroid, as part of controlling your metabolism, also helps control uh, the rate at which your guts are moving, so emptying things out, motility. Um, And you're asking how you can look into it and see. So... Definitely go to Wikipedia or the Stop the Thyroid Madness website. They do a brilliant job of outlining uh, how to do a lot of self-assessments and a lot of the labs that you want to uh, get from your doctors. Usually because of how the insurance system in America works, the doctors aren't running the full cohort of labs that maybe they might like to. Uh, The things that you definitely want to uh, get would be TSH, total T3, free T3, total T4, free T4, reverse T3, which is missed a lot of the time, Um, anti-TPO, which is related to Hashimoto's, anti-thyroglobulin, and sex hormone binding globulin, and ferritin, and there's a bunch of others. But in order to really get a picture of how well your body cells are doing with uh, regards to the thyroid, those are the ones you really want to hit, rather than just the T4 and TSH that you might have only had done previously. 
And I know when I've had my thyroid checked many times in the past, I've just had that very, I guess, basic um, introductory test to it. And um, I'm, I'm on a bit of a testing hiatus at the moment. <laughs> I've got to be really honest. I'm test, I've got testing fatigue oh, yeah. where I just did so many tests and spent so much money on it uh, that I'm just having a break from it all. But I feel that um, there are issues with my thyroid based on symptoms, based on being cold, particularly in winter, I am frozen to the core all the time, cold hands, cold feet, um, uh, scalloped tongue. I in the past used to suffer quite badly from chronic constipation. I don't so much anymore, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's definitely worthwhile um, checking out thyroid for me. And my naturopath based in, back in Australia also thinks that there may be some methylation issues with me based on some of my symptoms. And when you talk about... Um, your very simple explanation, Adam, around those pathways and and those domino effects on how one leads can lead to another and can impact another, it just it really um, supports, I think, you know, my own personal awareness and my listeners around how it is important to to keep looking and that SIBO itself is not the definitive end or um, of you know we might be lucky and be able to reduce your bacteria numbers, but that's not the end. Sometimes it's just the beginning. Yeah, definitely. Although there are the people that just got the food poisoning, just developed the SIBO, and Zyfaxin is the magic pill. And I really love those cases. <laughs> <laughs> I think most practitioners do. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> and I think that uh, sadly for most of my listeners, they're the other camp. They're the, the two-thirds chronic who are, um, have been dealing with this condition for many years. And in fact, I um, just recently ran a survey with some people and the majority of people had been dealing with this for three plus years, but with a, with wow. a fair whack yeah. sitting in the five plus year category. So it's been, it's a chronic condition for them now. Oh, absolutely. And uh, what does Zyfaxin's marketing materials say that 58% of all IBSD is related to SIBO so that they can sell more Zyfaxin? But so you have people that their entire lives have had IBS, and now we finally just have a way to, a, a structure and a framework with which to uh, address it, rather than just say, you know, it's something you have to deal with. So th- that's the other reason I think we're seeing so much. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I think that um, the my concern with um, the way that pharmaceuticals are advertised in the States, it's not the same in Australia. We mm. cannot advertise mm-hmm. direct to consumers, which is wonderful. Oh, my God, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but when I, whenever I come to the US, I just feel so sad at looking at these commercials on TV and, um, you know, these well-put-together um, advertisements by the pharmaceutical companies going, you have IBS, just pop this pill and everything will be right. And But we're not addressing the underlying cause. We're, we're just t- putting a, a Band-Aid over the top of it and saying, here, take this tablet and it will be okay. But it actually won't be for so many people. For some, it is, and that's wonderful. But for so many, it's not. And, and I think that's probably why they um, come looking for services with a naturopathic doctor like yourself because they're not getting the, the answers from those pharmaceuticals. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I want to see the uh, TV ad that says, ask your doctor if diet and exercise are right for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know. It just uh, fills me with horror, those ads, but that's my personal bugbear. Um, So 
as we can see that there's, you know, methylation is is an incredibly important role um, that it plays in the body. Uh, there was a really great thing, the way you described um, before, you've got this um, very elaborate diagram in your um, rooms here that I'm looking at. Uh, it's, you know, difficult to, to <laughs> explain exactly what's on it because uh, there's a lot. But you did describe just that pathway of, you know, this is this one category and this is basically this other category and these are the wheels and the cogs turning. Can you um, hopefully <laughs> to talk about that again with me uh, so for the listeners so that we can kind of, uh, again, describe that process and what it's doing? You know, it might be hard to do without being able to point and dance around the picture. Uh, well, you. Um, what what I thought was really great was how you how you said it. You know, this is where you start, and then you move up into folate, and that's basically a fancy term for folate, I think. Okay. And then yeah. that, and then the the cogs come together, and if there's methylation, then it sure. can be a bit like dust on the filter. Yeah. Okay. We we can go through that, and and just just to be clear, these are my simplified uh, statements. And while I treat methylation on a daily basis, there are, there are many doctors that. De- uh, dedicate their lives to this. Who of course, I'm certain would have take umbrage to anything I'm about to say. But let's <laughs> but go I ahead and go with it anyway. <laughs> what I think is really important is sometimes we've got to simplify right down so that we can start to understand before we can go deep. If we go deep straight away, then it's really difficult, and you're just lost, and it doesn't make any sense. As it has been the case for me, and I've been trying to learn and understand methylation now for the last probably 12 months. It, it's one of the more complex things that we deal with. I mean, if we think SIBO is complex, this whole methylation concept uh, takes it really to the next level. Um, for people to take, take a look at their own uh, methylation folate cycle uh, stuff, here in the States, we have a lab called 23andMe. I don't know if you have that in Australia. No, I don't think so. But I could be wrong. I don't think so, though. You know, actually, it's through the mail. So... Yeah, and we Maybe. do. We often. Uh, I have had to um, mail um, samples mm-hmm. um, many times before because we just don't have the laboratories in Australia testing. So I, I send stuff to the states. So if you are able to do that for Australia, but also um, perhaps anywhere in the world, Twenty Three and Me does some great things for genetics. You can see where your family's from, things like that. But the most useful part for our discussion is you can take the raw data that's out of that, where they have sequenced most of your genome and run that through some secondary tools. One of them is by the uh, Seeking Health Company, and I believe it's called Stratagene. And that gives you a really good breakdown that utilizes this complex picture and tells a person which of the little cogs and points in this complex picture the person might have uh, uh, issues with. Because at the end of the day, we use the term MTHFR a lot, but... Uh, at this big picture we're looking at, there's about 100 little spots on there, all of which look just like the MTHFR block. It's just the uh, the bell of the ball that's gotten all of the attention. But the reason she gets all that attention is if MTHFR doesn't do its job of converting folate properly, then all of these other t- uh, cogs that turn, that make DNA, that make the switches, that turn lights on and off, that make your uh, antioxidants and your neurotransmitters, if that one thing that f- processes folate properly doesn't work, then all of those cogs come to a stop. The, the body loves redundancy, and there's tons of avenues of redundancy all through the rest of it, but that's one key area that does break down. And so I think that's why MTHFR itself has gotten such a big um, name for itself. 
But so if you're taking a look at your strategy and results uh, or Genetic Genie or any of the others that you can run the 23andMe data through, you can see what key areas you have in addition to just the MTHFR. If you have just one, the main flavor of MTHFR, it's pretty easy to work around. You take a fancy folate called methyl tetrahydrofolate for people that like acronyms. Um, or, the reverse, or names. <laughs> or, or the reverse. Um, if they have the thing that's right downstream from it, uh, they can take fancy uh, B12, methylcobalamin. Okay, great. But then you have all of the supporting players, the, all of the minerals, the zinc, the molybdenum, things like that. So it gets pretty complicated at that point. So when the MTHFR, uh, if that is present in terms of the mutation, um, so you're saying that that stops the cogs in the wheel of um, turning. Is that what it's doing? Slows it down. Slows yeah. it down. And then what, what is happening if those cogs in the wheel are slowing down? It's just not, you know. Yeah, I'd love to know so, what, it, what's it, what it's doing. So if the cogs in the wheel, if you think about a machine, if the machine slows down, the output slows down. Mm-hmm. So you stop making the little methyl groups that turn things on and off like light switches throughout the body. So you have processes that slow down. You start making glutathione, which is your main antioxidant, far less, which means that your body's ability to deal with toxic chemicals or even just your body doing its day-to-day business slows down, increasing aging, increasing cellular death, increasing just damage across the board. If the cogs slow down... You also have a difficult time making DNA. So all of your fastly recreating cells, like red blood cells, get they, they can't mature as quickly. Uh, one good sign if you're looking at a blood lab for maybe you have a methylation thing is if the size of your red blood cells is above, eh, I'm going to make up a number. Let's call it 95. Uh, and if you have a homocysteine that's high too, yeah, you probably do have a methylation defect. But frequently you'll have people with the methylation defects where their blood looks fine. Just because you have a genetic thing doesn't necessarily mean that it's showing up in your body. Uh, what's that phrase? I think maybe Paul Anderson said it. Uh, Genetics loads the gun, but your environment pulls the trigger. So ju- you might have just a mishmash of genes that somebody might say are horrible on paper. But if you're living a good life, if you're relatively low stress, if you haven't had any major reasons to trigger it, you might not be showing them up at all. And that's something really important to remember with all of the methylation components. Just because you have the gene doesn't mean that it's doing a single thing to you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think that's really important and and something interesting from my own experience to share with yourself and the listeners is um, I have the hemochromatosis genetic mutation and both my parents are carriers of that gene mutation. 
And when I was diagnosed with SIBO, I just happened to go into my GP and she had said, look, we haven't done any blood work for you for quite a while. Um, And so she ran that. She said, I just want to check cholesterol and, you know, just your sugars and all of the rest. And my ferritin levels, my saturation levels were incredibly high. And because I'd been going to that one GP for many years, we had a history of blood work. And when we actually put them side by side, we could see that my ferritin saturation had been steadily increasing since I'd started going to to her since returning to Australia from living in the UK. Um, But really interesting was that six months later, once I had cleared my SIBO, my ferritin was back down in a normal range and it had dropped significantly. And she was amazed by that. And it just, I guess, goes to show that I have the genetic mutation, but because my diet, um, my lifestyle, my stress, my gut health, um, my overall health had dramatically improved because I'd been dealing with, you know, SIBO and my life, um, that it had a big impact on this gene. Well, that's fantastic. There, there might be a, a, a secondary... Uh, I'm sure there's more than that well, <laughs> to it. Uh, ferritin also spikes when your body's under acute inflammation. Ah. If you have SIBO, you have all kinds of inflammation going on. Treating yourself well, uh, taking care of your body, fixing your gut, it's going to drop the inflammation. So it might not have been a genetic component. Uh, it may have just been a natural response. That's so interesting. It could have been. We won't know. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Uh, the good thing is that at last, at last count, the ferritin in my body it, it, um, has returned to normal, and I'm just going to watch it um, with interest to see what happens. Awesome! I love it. <laughs> I love being a science experiment of one. <laughs> it's so much fun, and this is why I, one of the reasons why I do the podcast is because I get to talk to people like you and learn so much every single day. Oh, it's from podcasts like yours where you're talking to so many doctors and especially patients, patients who have done more research probably than any other doctor out there. It's from engaging with folks like you that we actually learn more. Uh, Doctors hanging out in an ivory tower don't grow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that um, we we were talking about this before. It's really important. It's important for me to be sharing um, information and knowledge out there so that the SIBOers um, can feel empowered and educated on their own condition, but also so that we are sharing knowledge and information amongst our medical community so that people learn. You know, we can only learn by with, you know, by further research and talking to others and hearing what other practitioners are doing in their practice and what works for them and what doesn't work for them. So, yeah, I love it. Um, one other thing that uh, we, we did talk about before we started recording was the need for food allergy testing mm, um, mm-hmm. and your views on whether we should be testing. We can do – we could literally spend our lives in tests and sometimes when you've got SIBO, it feels like that's all you're doing and you're spending a bucket load of money on right. tests. Oh, absolutely. It's so expensive sometimes having this condition. So what, what are your views on food allergy testing? I'd say this is probably one of the more controversial topics amongst um, all of us. And I, this is one of the great questions that was on your Facebook or on the SIBO Discussion Support Group page. Um, my personal approach towards food sensitivity tests when somebody has high inflammation, high CRP, high IgE, which is the allergy-related um, 
uh, biomarkers um, or SIBO or leaky gut is is that um, it might not be as useful as you want it to be. I view them as a 50-50 for use. And I tell patients that right off. It's, it, it's a potential gamble. Sometimes they can be glorious and beautiful and really nail exactly you know, a food or a group that's hitting you. Or, and you see this with the people that are inflamed or with SIBO, tons and tons of foods come back positive. And so all of a sudden the person is taking a FODMAPS diet and reducing it down even more to where they're eating like a rabbit. And in reality, what you'll frequently see is you fix their gut, you deal with any leaky gut types of things, you calm down the immune system, look at those same tests uh, six months later or a year later, and maybe only one or two foods are impacted. So the test has benefit, but it also has danger. If it comes out useful, it's beautiful. If it comes out artificially inflamed, a person thinks they can't eat ever again in their life and might continue with that test ad nauseum. And so I encourage the testing under the appropriate conditions, namely your body's not crazy inflamed. Or if you have the extra funds and you want to do it, absolutely. I do that for myself. Um, But just do it with open eyes. Are there certain tests that you think, you know, absolutely categorically um, are the base standard that you would do with a patient? Um, (laughs) Or is it kind of how long's a piece of string? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I definitely have. Are are you talking about just with food sensitivities? Or just in testing in in general general when it comes to SIBO and gut conditions? Yeah. Okay. Um, Definitely base thyroid. I do look at methylation type of picture. Uh, I do comprehensive regular body analysis and the homocysteine and a few other things. A a relatively complete uh, blood panel. If I think they have SIBO, I'm definitely obviously doing uh, the lactulose breath test. Maybe a glucose one, uh, less so, less uh, often. And I might just leave it at that initially. Um, I haven't really run the anti-vaniculin IBS check uh, more than 10 times. It hasn't correlated clinically, but maybe I'm just not using it the way that other folks uh, are. Uh, I might do a salivary cortisol test if I think that adrenals might be impacting thyroid, which might be impacting uh, motility. I might do a stool panel. Uh, I use Genova's, but there are many good uh, panels out there. If I think there might be a parasite blasto uh, or a candida picture, even though those don't always show up, they can be useful. Those can also give you an idea of what um, bacteria might be overgrowing. There is a theory that the uh, bugs that you see in a stool test have no reflection to SIBO, but I consistently see that to be, uh, if you do have something exponentially higher in the bacterial panel, they're going to blow positive for SIBO. Um, So that's another little contention thing amongst all the doctors, but I see it being, being useful. Other than that, um, that's a good starting point. Mm, definitely. And it definitely gives a good picture of their current health. And I think that um, from what I've learned doing this podcast is that the tests can be very useful, but they're also just a picture in time. Yeah, absolutely. Of what's going on today. So with that in mind, do you then retest? And if so, how quickly do you retest? Well, I'll d- so I'll do the initial test. And then we'll get together and initiate some treatment. And the way I usually work, but this all depends on the philosophy 
uh, and means of the patient. Uh, do a round of whatever pharmaceuticals uh, seem appropriate, uh, a round of herbals, and then retest. It, it's a fairly short uh, treatment, but if you don't see any improvement at that point, well, you're doing something wrong or you're choosing the wrong agents. Uh, now if you are seeing improvement, uh, do that same loop, maybe mixing and matching uh, with both the pharmaceuticals and uh, the herbs to prevent resistance, as we were talking about earlier, and just to ins- more or more to ensure broad spectrum coverage. And do those until the person is feeling like they've hit a plateau of improvement, and then retest again. And do you use the herbs and the um, antibiotics at the same time, or do you run one course and then follow it up by the other course? Right now, I run them uh, pharmaceuticals first, followed by uh, herbs, but that's an interesting idea. And if any of your listeners have worked with any doctors that have run them together, I'd love to hear about their experience. Mm. Um, I might throw in some anti-yeast herbs when I'm doing the pharmaceuticals or throw in some biofilm tools, but I, I typically keep them a little separate. And let's talk about biofilms. Mm-hmm. Do you do much work around um, with biofilms? And, and, and if so, what do you do? Uh, well, the concepts for biofilms make a whole ton of sense. Uh, the bacteria making this little protective shell that they get to hang out in. And if you're trying to carpet bomb the bacteria, you need to be able to get to them through the shell. So the, the theories make sense. Uh, I think they've panned out in some studies that Pimentel and a few other folks have done. Uh, so if somebody has a longer term type of SIBO, yeah, I'll, I'll run some type of a biofilm buster. Personally, I use interface or compounded one with uh, bismuth, DMPS, and I think DMSO. But there's a, there's a lot of different tools out there. And given that um, motility is, is often compromised in mm-hmm. SIBO, what do you do to support motility in patients? The ones that are used most these days, uh, Melanie Keller loves uh, Modal Pro, or at least she did last year, and has seen a, a ton of good improvement with that. That's a, a supplement by Pure Encapsulations. Uh, also, low-dose erythromycin, so I believe a fifth of the smallest pill that you can get out there. Uh, that one has good studies on it. And then uh, the Pimentel Group uses one called Resolor or Percalipride. I think it has another brand name too. Uh, which has really good effects. So all three of those are useful. I actually used Motul Pro myself. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Oh, great. <laughs> it worked really well for me, and it also made me feel really good. So it was a oh. kind of double whammy. Um, How did it make you feel good? I, I felt really positive, and actually my naturopath was telling me that there – now I've got to try and remember the, the correct uh, information, but I'm pretty sure she said that it had an impact on melatonin Tonin, I think. I might be completely misquoting her. Um, but anyway, she said that it did have a positive Im- impact on other things in the body. And um, and that was probably why I was feeling so happy and positive. I put it down to the fact that I was going to the toilet every day for the first time <laughs> in my life. And I didn't realize how good doing a poo every day makes you feel. <laughs> oh, everybody loves pooping. <laughs> it was wonderful and not having to strain and sit on the toilet for hours. <laughs> you know, I could see why this, we just pulled up the ingredients. I can see why this would make somebody feel good. It has a little bit of 5-HTP, so a little bit of a happy hormone to it, which probably somebody on an SSRI antidepressant might contemplate before they take this. So this is not medical advice. Um, and then the ginger, that's a great um, boosting, energizing herb. And that's also the main uh, motility one. So 
Hmm. Hmm. I actually think I want to try that night. I, yeah. I poop fine. <laughs> um, one of the questions I had from the um, SIBO Facebook group was uh, um, with a one with a person who currently uses Resolor asking if um, anybody, if you've ever seen people find difficulty sleeping when they're taking that. Do you Have you ever seen that in clinical practice? That is a really interesting question, and no, I haven't. Um, you do with LDN, uh, low-dose naltrexone, for up to two weeks. Uh, but I haven't heard of that with Resolor. The worst I've heard with Resolor is um, it being a little too strong mm. and people needing to cut the dose back. Mm, as so, in that it, it provides them or gives them diarrhea? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So if any of your listeners have had that same experience with the Resolor, uh, post it to your Facebook page or wherever this thing comes up because I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. Well, people can head to the Healthy Gut Facebook page um, and put in any comments that they've got for Dr. Adam Sanford uh, on my page and he'll uh, I'll make sure he um, sees them. Um in terms of, so we've talked a little bit about treatment. Are you seeing any patients coming through that are becoming resistant to either the herbs or the antibiotics that you're using to treat them with? I haven't seen people that have become resistant. And from at least the studies from uh, Pimentel and Weinstock and those guys last year, they they haven't seen too much in terms of Zyfaxin uh, resistance. And if you run Zyf- uh, if you run if you're doing Neomycin or Metro with the Zyfaxin, the Zyfaxin prevents theoretically the resistance from building. I think maybe what we end up seeing more is that you've taken care of the initial crop of bacteria that are susceptible to the one agent, and now you're dealing with another batch. Um, I guess this might lead to how one might go about interpreting SIBO labs. And all of us do it a little differently, so this is just my particular take. Um, If somebody has high methane, but they're not showing very much hydrogen, to me that actually means that they still have a whole ton of hydrogen. It's just being hidden by the methane. So if we do a certain set of antibiotics, which is dropping the methane, and then they go from having a constipation to a diarrhea picture, and that same treatment over and over again doesn't work, it means that the shift is necessary. So I haven't seen nor heard of them building resistance, but the concept of needing to have a broad spectrum approach, I think is really important. Mm, And that is quite, I hear that quite commonly that, um, that numbers will jump after a round of treatment and people are like, but, but I just did my treatment. Why have my numbers just skyrocketed? Well, that's, that's one of the things I love to see. If somebody has really high methane and low hydrogen, th- I saw this a couple times in the last two days, then their methane drops and the hydrogen jumps. I go, yes, this is great. Things are moving forward, but my numbers went up. Yeah, but it's a math thing. You have CH4 for methane, so there's four hydrogens, and H2 is the other one, so the methane bugs gobble up the hydrogen. Okay, that's totally beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's important to understand how the base level of how that works because um, it can be very confusing and, and upsetting to think, you know, if if you're looking at your test results going, the number one objective for me is to have my numbers reduced and then you see the results and they've actually gone up. Understanding that the methane is um, gobbling up hydrogen and so by reducing the methane-producing bugs – um, that that is going to potentially lead to more hydrogen, then it's not so upsetting. Okay. 
Yeah. I, Potentially. No, no, that, that, that's exactly my interpretation of it. And yeah, if, if people are getting worried about that when they look at their labs, I completely agree. It's important to understand that, mm. uh, that concept. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, let's quickly touch on nutrition because nutrition is a um, is something we all think about a lot when we've got SIBO. What do you do with your patients? Do you put them on one of the um, SIBO diets? Do you give them the options? Do you try and modify something so it's specific to them? What's your approach? I'll use. I'll usually start by putting them on to one of the low FODMAPs SCD ones, either Dr. Jacoby or uh, C. Becker's uh, lower FODMAP ones to see what their response is. Because if that right there can reduce a lot of the diarrhea and discomfort, hey, go with it. Uh I'm hit or miss as to whether or not it should be done long term. It can be pretty limiting. Uh, it can also drop people's uh, compliance in terms of getting better. But then again, if you're not doing the proper work to limit your diet, to prevent the bacterial growth, then you may be that one of the many, many people that see it come back in six to nine months. Or is that due to motility? Uh, but the, the diets that I use, uh, they're Typically one of those two, there is a, um, one of the food delivery services and I'm totally going to plug them. (laughs) (laughs) Free advertising for them. (laughs) Uh, this is in the States and the group is caveman chefs. Um, I originally looked at them for paleo stuff, but they'll actually customize. And so I've gotten them making low FODMAPs, uh, food delivery. So it's, you can take it, pop it in the microwave. So if you're getting super tired of eating in a certain you know, cooking and the restaurant and having the do that crazy selection, you can buy all their stuff and uh, just have something in the freezer as easy, quick food. Oh, that's so wonderful. And when I was going through treatment, I used to think, I would just wish there was somebody that could just deliver food. I love to cook and I'm such a foodie. But there are times when you just don't want to cook. You're tired, you're exhausted, fatigued and over it. <laughs> you know what I would love to see? What's that? I would love to see you collaborate with them because they're just taking the food list that I gave them. You know how to execute on this. Yeah. If you could help them execute on this and help all the, you know, people here and then maybe help somebody replicate the same model in Australia, you could do a ton of good. Well, definitely. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's see what we can do. Let's see what magic we can do. There was a food system. Um, sorry, there's a cafe in Melbourne who, reached out to me and they were doing home delivery in Melbourne. So, you know, obviously not even national, um, only in the um, city of Melbourne in Australia. And they would, they had um, taken Dr. Jacoby's biphasic diet um, sheet and then they were creating SIBO meals based on what phase you were in being, the, oh, you know, perfect. The, the three, there's three phases if you like. Um, and I, I road uh, tested it for them because I said to them, look, let let me see what it's like because I I know the world of SIBO so intimately and and I was still relatively recently out of my SIBO treatment. I tell you what, just having someone create your own food, uh, create food for you that was compliant, they modified it to any additional um, requirements that you had. So you could say, look, um, here's the food guide, but I can't tolerate pumpkin I personally can't have any quinoa and um, Narala Jacoby had recently introduced quinoa as an additional um, kind of carbohydrate 
um, well, it's not a grain, but it's a seed that acts like a grain. Um, and I have violent reactions to it. My system hates it. I'm violently ill with crippling stomach cramps from it. Um, anyway, I said to them, look, I haven't eaten it in some time. Why don't we include it? I ate it. Not It wasn't a great outcome. <laughs> um, but what was really lovely was that they were able to modify and um, – but it was just that just knowing that I could go home after a busy day and there was a dinner prepared for me and I could just heat it up and it was you know really beautiful food all um, from local providers local producers um, all mostly organic and just gorgeous and that if I'd had that when I was going through treatment and if I'd been that person struggling with compliance that would have made all the difference because my food was there it was prepared for me it would have been absolutely worth the investment and i would have stuck to it and i think having having more services like that both here in the states and and across the world will just help people to support getting well again i completely agree and I came across them because in January I was doing the Whole30. So I came ah. across every food delivery service that I thought I wanted to approach. And I, I don't know, I spent, I spent a ridiculous amount of money testing all five companies over January. And yeah, having the food when you're doing a restrictive diet, just being able to be magically dropped onto you like the stork and a baby – uh, is delightful. <laughs> it is. And it's one of the reasons why I developed the cookbooks. And whilst my cookbooks aren't actually putting food in your fridge ready to go, it's the, the, a next step forward at least so that you can have um, delicious recipes that are easy to make that you you don't have to think. You can just open a book and go, tonight I'm having the beef rendang and being able to um, take dishes that would normally be completely off limits and making them SIBO friendly. Um, and I know that it's helped a, a huge number of people just who, who are still happy to cook um, to take away some of the stress and anxiety. And, and one of my absolute passions in life is that there are enough support services out there for us SIBOers so that we can return to living a great life not an average life, not a mediocre life, but a really happy and fulfilling and wonderful life um, for our entire life and that we're not focusing so much on how sick we feel, but we're focusing on other things because some of the stresses in life are taken away from us. Like, what the hell do I eat? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Some other aspects that I developed, Adam, as I went through my journey are what I call the five key pillars to health. Mm-hmm. And they are awareness, nutrition, movement, mindset, and lifestyle. We've talked a little bit about Love nutrition. It. And we've also talked a little bit about awareness. But I realized that in order to truly regain my health, and I'm still on that path, I wouldn't say that I have retra- um, regained optimal health, but I'm definitely a hell of a lot better than I've ever been in my life, um, was that A, I needed to start being aware of my surroundings, my body, um, my education, everything, um, which is why I've ended up doing this. Um, My nutrition is fundamentally important because what I eat is what I become both today and in the future. My movement is important, I believe, because without moving my body you know, I'm a sedentary slug and we were designed to move my mindset is equally as important because what I think is what I am and if I think in a very negative way, then my body, I believe, will sit in a very negative state. And then the final piece being lifestyle was how how I supported this body of mine through sleep, through stress, through relationships, all of that. 
do you um, talk to any of your patients about these other, I guess, complementary and supportive approaches to regaining health? Absolutely. Um, I look at the at the social aspect. I look at the personal aspect, the self cultivation, the self care. Um, I mean, just from what you're saying about stress is dramatically huge, and exercise that's going to control a whole ton of the metabolism. Uh, and and so I do touch on it. But I think that that's an area that most physicians, including myself, don't do enough in. Um, we are just so in the trenches of fixing the one little area uh, that's causing you the greatest distress, but we're not engaging to the depth and the level that we'd like to, time constraints, whatever, uh, for for the ultimate perfect long-term cure. There's There needs to be a collaboration between... Um, the, the doctors that are doing the direct day-to-day training or uh, uh, treatment and uh, the the professionals like you that are engaged in all of those other aspects. Uh, it's it's like there's a, a nutritionist that I work with uh, some uh, sometimes in uh, the Seattle area who helps pick up some of the nutrition load um, because it's, it's just not an area that I have the time to focus on. But I think all of us SIBO doctors need... Um, somebody like you or other people that focus in this area to help us deliver to the patients that complete holistic full circle uh, approach. So if you have any thoughts about how you might engage with all of the SIBO doctors, that'd be great. It's like you were saying with the most recent uh, conference, there was a huge amount of that direct care, self-care component that was just missing. It was all about treating bugs and motility and methylation. It was, and, and it was a great conference. And, um, you know, I came away and having learnt a lot from it again. Uh, but one of my big bugbears in the world of SIBO treatment is that we're being very narrow focused on it because we're thinking about just the bacterial overgrowth. And we're not thinking about the all of these other aspects of life which contribute uh, or can hinder return to health and if someone is not eating good quality food or they're only getting five or six hours sleep a night and they're incredibly stressed they've got a really stressful job um, the body is under stress naturally from this overgrowth of bacteria and then you're pouring more stress on perhaps you're in a relationship that you fundamentally know isn't right but you feel that you can't leave. Um, You might have a sick child that's causing a lot of stress. All of these things are limiting our ability to get well. And I just really, you know, I'm driven to support SIBO patients on these other areas because I just don't see that we're talking about them enough. Some people are, um, but I don't feel like it's being talked about enough, nor is it being addressed in their um, medical um, consultations. And perhaps that's never going to be the role of those medical consultations and perhaps it's the role of people like myself that need to really be driving um, that awareness on these things. I think, no, I I think it is the role of the doctor to be able to provide that and the role uh, of the professional coaches like you to be able to do that too. But uh, if we're talking about a role for you, (laughs) come up with the scaffolding that um, the doctors can wrap their brains around to deliver the things that you think that the patients need by your assisting us, your reach could extend tenfold. And I, I personally be all over that. Mm, interesting. Well, uh, let's, you know, 
this uh, it's it's always really interesting having these conversations. So you never know exactly where they'll go. So to all the patients and the practitioners listening to today's podcast, drop me an email at Rebecca at thehealthygut.co and let me know what you think that, you know, how I could be of service um, to both the treatment of the patient and also from the patient's perspective. Because my, I tell you what, I am dedicating my life to supporting people to move away from chronic illness and move towards health and happiness. Because even though I I wouldn't say that I'm at the most optimal health now. I tell you what, life is absolutely bloody amazing today for me. And I was sick for 36 years and I don't want another single person to feel like I did and nor should they have to. So I'm driven to make a change in this world. And I'll, you know, till my dying breath, I will be um, passionately doing that. I am happy to help you figure out how to engage with us. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Adam. Adam, it's been uh, Dr. Adam Sanford. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you come on to the Healthy Gut podcast today. We've talked about all sorts of things. We've answered quite a few of the questions that uh, all my gorgeous SIBO peeps in the Facebook group had asked me to try and get answers on. So I appreciate the time that you've spent with me today and also sharing your knowledge. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. See you next year. (laughs) See you next year. I hope you enjoyed today's show with Dr. Adam Sanford. And as you can probably hear, I thoroughly enjoyed that interview, sitting there with him face to face, talking about all things SIBO. And I really did mean it when I said at the end of that discussion with Dr. Sanford to connect with me and to share your thoughts. Uh, So my email address is in the show notes, so you can definitely reach out to me. And if you would like to see the full transcript description or the show notes or any of the links um, or my email address that we mentioned in today's episode, just head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO questions and there you will find all of those resources. Don't forget to leave a rating and review in iTunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast. And we love connecting with you on our social media pages. So head to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest or Google Plus pages. You can find us under The Healthy Gut. Coming up on next week's show, we're joined by dietitian Erica Julson, who I also had the pleasure of sitting down face-to-face with in Los Angeles. We talk all about food sensitivities, intolerances and allergies, and it's a really great episode with Erica. So I look forward to seeing you next week. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.